Good evening to you all. It's the weekend now, but you probably don't know that. (laughs) I'd like to talk a little bit more about uh, a topic that touches on wise effort or right effort, but it's not... uh, focused too technically on that, but it's part of a bigger examination of why it's so hard for us to notice our goodness. So we'll start with a little bit of a review. I think when uh, we discuss the four great endeavors that are part of wise effort, we talked about the effort to avoid or prevent unwholesome states from arising. We talked about mindfulness as a a protection there and guarding the sense doors and efforts along that line. We talked about the effort to abandon unwholesome states if they have arisen, and that was all all about practicing with with the hindrances when they're present. But there's two more of these great endeavors and that is the effort to cultivate wholesome states that have not yet arisen. In other words, do something to help them come into being. And the fourth, the effort to maintain wholesome states that have already arisen. So to keep them going. And the talk tonight is really going to focus mostly on three and four in this whole area of working with wholesomeness. So maybe we should talk for a bit about wholesome states and what they are and how they fit into the schema of liberation. Now start with this uh, word wholesome. That's the English translation um, of the Pali Kusala. Personally, I don't particularly like the word wholesome. I mean, it's functional, but it sounds a little bit white bread to me, you know, kind of like, I don't know, wholesome. Yeah, and it is wholesome, but there's a bit more to it than that. But these wholesome states are very important because they're basically the states that have their roots in non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. So better known as generosity, loving-kindness, and wisdom. And within the Buddha's structure of uh, the progression towards happiness and liberation, these states really play a key role. They're both uh, the way we move towards relative happiness, as well as states that are uh, part of the ultimate release into enlightenment. So they're part of the path to emancipation, as well as a manifestation of the liberated mind. They're what uh, an awakened mind manifests when it's awake.
So this is an area where it's probably wise to get specific, right? I mean, you might be going, well, what does that mean, states rooted in non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion? Well, it includes things like mindfulness, which arises in conjunction with all wholesome states. So that's an interesting thing, right? in and of itself, right? That mindfulness is always present with wholesome states. It clues you in on the the key role of mindfulness within this whole process of liberation, if that's always there. It includes uh, the states of uh, metta, or loving friendliness, uh, karuna, compassion, mudita, empathetic joy, and upekka, equanimity. It includes uh, dana or generosity. It includes wise attention, insight. It includes the seven factors of awakening, basically mindfulness again, but then also investigation, energy, rapture, RPT, calm, concentration, and equanimity, again. It includes the paramis, dana, or generosity, again, sila, or moral restraint, renunciation, wisdom, energy, truthfulness, resolve, metta, again, equanimity, again. It includes what are called the five controlling faculties, uh, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom. Interesting, you're starting to notice the repetition of certain ones, right? It includes uh, moral restraint because of self-respect. Like, I wouldn't uh, entertain or perform that action because it's not in accord with my... uh, Dignity. It includes moral restraint due to respect for others, according basic respect and protection to others, regardless of uh, whether you like them or not, and whether or not you're provoked. So these wholesome states can be known either as states, meaning they're the predominant thing that's being known, that is arising in the mind and can be recognized as a state, or they can actually be uh, in the mix, present as uh, mental factors in what we uh, experience or how we know. So, for instance, an example of something being present as a mental factor in something uh, that's known would be an example of... uh, Knowing a neutral object, an object with neutral vedna, you know, neither particularly pleasant or unpleasant. And this is a, a place where the mind often goes asleep and doesn't pay too much attention because it doesn't find it that riveting. Wise attention can be present in that case with something that is pretty neutral, but the mind is. Uh, present with it and knowing it, knowing the neutrality, knowing the object, resting with the object, being present with the object as part of the process of connecting with it. 
So that's an example of one of these uh, showing up as a mental factor. It's not the primary thing happening, but it's the reason or part of the assemblage of things that allows you to connect with something that uh, is neutral, neutral in Vedana. So now that we've given some examples of what these wholesome states are and a couple different ways that they can function or show up in the mind, I'd like to talk about an interesting thing about them, or at least it's interesting to me, which is they're easily overlooked. They're easily overlooked, and there's some reasons why this seems to be so. One reason uh, we can miss them easily is that we don't experience them as problematic most of the time. And we're kind of oriented towards problems. Right? And we're particularly oriented towards problems when we approach practice in a way that turns the practice or attempts to turn the practice towards an excavation of our personal history or towards our you know, particularly difficult or painful patterns of body and mind, you know, when we're actually turning it in that direction, uh, which is not really what the practice is designed to do, but we're kind of taking the tools and using it to try to do something there. We're orienting towards a particular personal problem, and these these factors are not usually part of what we see as problematic. So another reason we sometimes don't see them or or know them clearly is that they're often no big deal to us, right? And this is uh, an interesting point. You know, they're not necessarily dramatic. Uh, They're not necessarily out of the ordinary. They might not be uh, particularly riveting, especially in contrast with some of the more uh, unwholesome states, which, as we all know, can be very vivid, right? Require attention. It's like you can't, can't get rid of them. And when we say, you know, these states are not any big deal to us, that, that can be a, uh, actually kind of a revealing uh, comment when it comes up in interviews. And I've had this uh, a number of times when I've I've pointed out to somebody in an interview, well, you know, this wholesome state is present in the mind, or that sounds like you met that with equanimity, or, you know, it sounds like that metta was present, or it sounds like patience was present, or it sounds like resolve was present. How frequently the tendency is to kind of like brush it off, like, Oh, well, that's no, that's not any big deal. That's not, you know, that's no big deal. That's like nothing. Well, no, it's a, some, it's a something, but it's not a something that we're necessarily always uh, interested in or open to seeing. We can also miss these things because they can be subtle. 
you know, unless they're novel, meaning we haven't had this particular mind state before, or strong, they don't necessarily draw our attention. And I think part of this is because while they might be pleasant, very often it's a predominantly mental kind of pleasure that's associated with it, rather than a predominantly physical one. And this isn't necessarily always true, but it's certainly some, sometimes true. And often in order to see these kinds of mental pleasures, the mind has to be uh, kind of settled, kind of calm, in order to notice that subtlety. Um, It's an interesting thing when you have periods in your practice where, for instance, you might be thinking or saying to yourself, there's nothing happening, there's nothing really happening. Very often what's going on there is that there's a bit of perceptual bias present. There's something happening, it's just not being seen, right? It might be something that you're not used to seeing at the level at which it's occurring. So those are some of the reasons why we can, we can miss these states when they arise. But there also may be some biological underpinning for this relatively low profile that these states tend to have in our mind. Uh, There's a very interesting uh, book by Rick Hansen called The Buddha's Brain uh, that might be of interest to some of you when you come off retreat. Um, So here's the question. And the question is, This is my question. Is there a biological bias towards the arising of unwholesome suffering states and towards seeing the unwholesome suffering states rather than the wholesome ones? And the answer seems to be, yeah, probably. Well, that's kind of a wild thing, you know, because given how personally we tend to take the unwholesome states, um, to come to a realization, well, mm, there might be something built in that is kind of physiologically uh, founded that's part of this whole whole thing. Which, of course, is part of the explanation of why it can be so hard to do this stuff. (laughs) You know, we're kind of cutting across the current of a lot of... uh, conditioned habits that have roots in the body, perhaps, as well as the mind. But when he's talking about the the possible biological basis for for some of these states, he says, uh, this he being Rick Hansen says, Imagine our mammalian ancestors dodging dinosaurs in a worldwide Jurassic Park 70 million years ago, constantly looking over their shoulders, alert to the slightest crackle of brush, ready to freeze or bolt or attack depending on the situation. The quick and the dead, if they failed to duck a stick which looked a bit like a predator, then they'd probably be killed. The ones that lived to pass on their genes paid a lot of attention to negative experiences. 
Well, we're all the product of the ones that lived <laughs> to pass on their genes. So he, he says in a, another place, your mind, your brain has a built-in negativity bias that primes you for avoidance. This makes you suffer in a variety of ways. For starters, it generates an unpleasant background of anxiety, which for some people can be quite intense. Anxiety also makes it harder to bring attention inward for self-awareness or contemplative practice, since the brain keeps scanning to make sure there is no problem. Have you noticed that? Pop up. Is there something? Oh, not. I should notice. The negativity bias fosters or intensifies other unpleasant emotions, such as anger, sorrow, depression, guilt, and shame. It highlights past losses and failure. It downplays present abilities, and it exaggerates future obstacles. Consequently, the mind continually tends to render unfair verdicts about a person's character, conduct, and possibilities. So that's part of the biological basis for the ease with which we see suffering states of mind, better known as unwholesome states. You know, suffering catches our attention. Lack of suffering unless it's very dramatic, perhaps not so much. But in addition to the biological underpinnings that might be present with part of this, there's a role that social conditioning plays in the development of a negativity bias towards our experience. So if we look at Western culture, and I'm aware not everyone here is from a Western culture, but uh, we've infiltrated. So uh, some of our uh, habits are picked up widely around the world as part of economic development. But if you look at Western culture, you know, we're very hyper-competitive, and hyper-individualistic, right? We see the self as a closed system, right? It's a kingdom. It's the self. And then there's everything else. It's isolated and set off against and graded against all others, right? I mean, all you have to do is look at some of the political discourse that takes place and, oh my goodness, you know? It's as if we uh, aren't floating in a a sea of uh, causes and conditions created by uh, the totality. But anyway, so our egoic identity is a construct of conditioned views and beliefs which we draw in good part from the larger culture. And so if we looked at what the larger culture tends to emphasize, value, and market, it's more along the lines of power, youth, attractiveness, wealth, success, popularity, or at least notoriety. It, uh, it, 
interesting thing that I've noticed in the last few years is that uh, there's kind of been a redefinition of this word notoriety to actually make it into a good thing. Because the word, at, at least in its traditional associations, suggests, yeah, you're well known, but you aren't well known in a way <laughs> that most people uh, would think would be a good thing. You're not well known for, you know, your, the Nobel Prize or anything like that. You're like notorious for gang crimes. Right, you see the difference, but that distinction has been uh, pretty much collapsed. Popularity or notoriety—it's um, all good, you know. As long as you're known, as long as you have a profile, you know, some kind of spotlight turning on uh, the story of me. So you know, our egoic identity, our self, is constructed in this very matrix of these kinds of values. And it adopts these beliefs and preferences, although we hear other things too, right? We hear other cultural strands, we hear other things from our families and communities. We don't just hear this, but we hear this a lot. And these values are all also very often present in the family, in school, in media, in the wider community. And we all have many ideas, feelings, thoughts, wishes, hopes, expectations, aspirations, longings, aversions, repulsions, comparisons, competitions, standards, conscious and unconscious, which are deeply committed Uh, conditioned by these types of values. Now, if we're all uh, uh, hipped up to the fact that these are conditioned views and we can see them simply as they are without adding identification and uh, an ownership narrative, uh, complete with a big eye, there's no problem. But the difficulty is that we usually don't. We're usually much more enmeshed with these. And in that way, with the internalization of these things, without them being seen, they become the measuring stick by which we determine whether we're okay, whether we deserve love, respect, and compassion. You know, and who can ever uh, measure up to these, right? We said it was hyper-competitive, which means that you're always subject to being dethroned, even if you currently place well in the competition. And these kinds of conditioned views make us prone to see our real or imagined deficiencies rather than our goodness, good qualities, our our wholesome states. And in fact, these cultural views of what makes a person worthwhile don't reference wholesome qualities of mind at all. It's not even on the measuring stick, is it? 
it's no wonder we don't really see the wholesome. We aren't looking for it. It's not part of the view. We tend to evaluate our experience by a totally different set of criteria. Power, youth, attractiveness, wealth, success, popularity, notoriety. And these are actually the markers on the ruler by which we tend to measure ourselves. If you remember back to, you know, what the Buddha says, wise intention is, it's really different. Wise intention, the intention towards renunciation, towards uh, metta, and towards compassion. I mean, there's no TV shows like that that I've ever seen. Right. You know, if you if you uh, you know watch the news, uh, especially given the the analysis of uh, the economic situation, how that's changed changed life for uh, many people in in the states and all, all around the world. Really, you know, you'll have people talk about you know they. They were just trying to pursue the American dream. They were just trying to pursue the American dream, make the American dream happen. And I listened to to this phrase uh, over and over again until I finally came to the realization that when they said American dream, they meant uh, a lot of money in a big house. And that it didn't have anything to do with service to the community, (laughs) you know, improving uh, conditions uh, in the country, uh, living up to uh, cultural ideals or any of that. You know, it was a very narrow, very narrow dream. And that's the milieu in which we, we find ourselves. So if we were going to... Uh, Look at how you practice with wholesome states. How can we make these states conscious? Because they are there. I mean, you don't wind up in a place like this if you don't have a lot of wholesome states. So they must be there. But let me just, actually, I've always wanted to do this. I'd always wanted to do kind of like a live polling of yogis. So this, this is just for my, my benefit. So you can close your eyes so no, you don't have to worry about other people seeing what your vote is. Okay. So this is my personal plebiscite. It's my experiment on the spot. All right. So close your eyes. So you can, I'll tell you what the result is. But close your eyes so you don't feel self-conscious or embarrassed. Okay. For how many people is uh, the pre- predominant experience that's known in your your uh, sitting practice, your sitting Vipassana practice, uh, wholesome, a wholesome, wholesome states. Okay, put them down. All right. So that was about five. <laughs> Okay, 
And, and yet we know from, you know, the meditation practice and from interviewing you that your practices are deepening and, you know, you're actually having... So it's happening, you're just kind of not noticing it, right? Well, that was very interesting. (laughs) So what you tend to mindfully notice when it's wholesome increases. That's one of the reasons you want to notice it. And this is an important thing about the whole um, ecology of the mind. And we've talked a little bit about this previously, is the quality of mindfulness and the effect it has. Right? And if you remember, part of what was said was this mindfulness, this particular quality is kind of like uh, the exact combination of weed killer and fertilizer (laughs) for your individual uh, garden, right? That it has the effect of diminishing the hindrances, weakening their potential for arising, as well as has the ability to strengthen and develop the wholesome states, right? Same quality, different objects arising in either with it or in proximity to it. In in both cases, it has exactly the effect you want it want to have, right? So you can see what a linchpin this is to the whole structure. So if you're going to go about practicing with wholesome states, the, the way the task is described in right effort is to arouse wholesome states not yet arisen. So how do, you, how do you do that? Well, part of it is setting wise intention. Right? Just being cognizant of the fact that the wise int- intention that's part of the Eightfold Path is this intention towards renunciation, metta, and karuna. Another way that you can arouse wholesome states not yet arisen <clears throat> is to follow the meditation instructions. So, you know, why do I say that? Well, because they're sort of designed to do what I referenced previously when I talked about the effect of mindfulness when it's, when it's present. So if mindfulness is present and the instructions are geared to arousing mindfulness, then if you follow the instructions, wholesome states will be more likely to arise. You can also cultivate these states by doing Brahma-vihara practice. And you can see that's a very direct way, right? Where you're intentionally planting this, uh, summoning this intention, planting this seed for future arisings of the same state as well. 
you know, committing the mind to the activity of summoning the state repeatedly. You know, the more frequently a state arises, if we're going to look at it from the perspective of neurobiology too, not that the brain and the mind are necessarily coextensive, but, you know, you're laying down neural pathways. You're making that connection. You're making it easier for that state to occur in the future through that activity of summoning it repeatedly in the, in the way that you do with Brahma-Vihara practice. Another way you can cultivate these wholesome states is to reflect on wholesome qualities and actions. And this is a very interesting one because um, I've found very often when I suggest this to people, and I know this is true for when it's been suggested in the hall too, very often you kind of don't want to which is interesting, you know. And, and often the objection that comes up around this is, well, you know, I don't want to inflate the self or I don't want to, you know, make a big self around these um, qualities and, and these actions. When really, the only thing that's being suggested is that you re- reflect on your um, wholesome karma, <laughs> So it's a reflection on your conditioning, which is wholesome. So there's no suggestion that uh, there's some sort of essentialism that you're clinging to. In a way, it's just saying, okay, what is is the conditioning? What's the wholesome karmic conditioning? What are the wholesome actions with wholesome uh, karmic results that you've performed that you can recall? And this, this is important because, you know, if we, if we never reflect on our goodness, we're not conscious of it. We've never turned our mind to it. How can we know it if we've never turned our mind to it? Any more than you can, you know, really know the breath until you turn your mind to it, right? Well, there's some goodness there. Can we orient the mind to it as a way to seeing what resources do we have? What work have we already done? What evidence do we have that we're good? So another thing that we can do to cultivate unarisen wholesome states is to maintain sila. You know, to honor uh, the precepts. You know, one way to understand sila is kind of like um, bad things you shouldn't do. But that's not necessarily so helpful, although it is sometimes good to be specific about what you shouldn't do. 
because sometimes we can forget that. But another way to understand sila and the precepts has to do with what ways will you choose to extend your yourself towards the protection of yourself and others. So mindfulness, of course, and its ecological effect is a very important part in the cultivation of wholesome states because it just does it, you know. It's the right thing to put on the garden. So if we were going to talk about the, set, the fourth endeavor, the fourth of the uh, great endeavors, to maintain wholesome states already arisen. There are a number of things that you can do, and one of them is to kind of have an idea what these states are. So I kind of went through the the list and talked about what some of them are. You might want to kind of do an experiment for yourself and, you know, Take out a piece of paper and just sometime just see, you know, which ones spontaneously come to your mind. And there might be some pretty significant gaps in the list. So if you can't remember too many of them, then maybe refreshing your memory with the list itself can be useful. Just in the same way that, you know... Uh, Somebody who was a, a scout on, uh, you know, guiding a covered wagon might say, well, you know, there's this landmark down here by the river. There's a big rock over there. There's a, you know. So then when people go along the path, they see it. They notice it from the description. Having a list, being familiar even with a list, can kind of plant the idea in your mind like, oh, these are things that could be there. These are things that could be noticed and present. Another thing that you can do is actually incline the mind towards noticing these. And you could do this in a sitting, say a Vipassana sitting, where you take a a sitting period in particular and say, okay, my theme for this sitting or the knowing that I'm going to orient the mind towards in the sitting is the arising of wholesome states or wholesome mental factors. You know, just in the same way that you could take a sitting, for instance, and then turn the mind towards the noticing of hearing, or turn the mind towards the noticing of Vedana, or turn the mind towards the noticing of body sensations. You could also take a sitting and turn the mind towards the noticing of wholesome mental states. And then with the recognition of them, you know, it's the usual process, you know, naming them, noting them, paying attention to them. And, you know, if the mind is having one of these experiences of, you know, nothing is happening, seeing if you can soften the mind and allow it to be a little more receptive, you know, you might discover there's a wholesome state there not 
not nothing, because if you're noticing nothing, it's a something (laughs) of some type. You know, if you see the beneficial nature of these states, it can be very helpful. And to see their arising as a good thing. You know, in Vipassana practice, we open to the arising of everything, right? And the usual way of practicing is practicing with predominance. You know, whatever is strongest or, you know, most right there. That's what we notice. So we're open to seeing uh, the hindrances. We're open to seeing the unskillful states if they're predominant, right? That's what hindrance practice is all about. But there's this whole other piece of noticing the wholesome states. And in the wholesome states, because they're wholesome, you can't have too much of them. You know, you might have some of them in a way that's not quite in balance with other energies and balance needs to be restored. Or you can get kind of like stuck on them, stuck on one particular one or get graspy or clinging or holding on to it. But the potential for you getting grasping and clinging and holding on to it should not be considered as a rationale for being a little ooh about them. You know, ooh, I might get lost in it. Ooh, I might, you know, get attached to it. Ooh. (laughs) They're wholesome states, right? Notice the attachment if it's there, okay? That's all you need to do. You don't need to, like, contract from these states, from the knowing them, and even from the enjoyment of them. Because you might, ooh, get attached. You know? As long as there's no clinging there, you can even invite them to stay. (laughs) The Buddha talks about uh, the skillfulness of keeping firmly in mind a favorable object of concentration that has arisen. You know, you'll understand as you go along that these two are just like unwholesome states, conditioned arisings. And at some point, they'll pass away too. Right? So you can invite them to stay, but at some point, causes and conditions change. That state will pass away. But... This is an important point. The more mindfulness is present and the more balanced the mind is, the more likely they'll be followed by another wholesome state. So, you know, the bad news is they go away. And the good news is you could well get another one. And this uh, brings me to a point about how practice may change over time. And I don't necessarily mean change in an hour, 
but I mean change over the horizon of committed practice, which is there tends to be a change in what you might call the product mix over time, you know, like, and it moves in the direction of more and more wholesome states and fewer unwholesome ones. And it moves in the direction of wholesome states that last longer and longer with unwholesome states moving through more quickly. Right? Why? Because mindfulness is strengthening. And because of the effect of mindfulness that I've described several times already tonight. So the wholesome states aren't enlightenment. But the wholesome states and the progression and strengthening of wholesome states are part of what happens in the process of the mind moving to the threshold of liberation. So they're nothing to be feared, right? So their cultivation in the kind of ways that I described are really good uh, practice. So we talked about kind of knowing what they are, recognizing them when they arise, understanding um, the effect of mindfulness on uh, increasing them, how to uh, open to them uh, without uh, clinging, how to let go of kind of hyper... uh, Uh, vigilance in terms of uh, not being attached to them, how to invite them to stay if they're present, how to know that they're going to go away anyway, any particular state will go away as it will, how this is a a process of continuing arising and passing away states, including these kind, but how over time the arising of other wholesome states becomes more and more frequent. They become more frequent visitors to the mind, stay longer. And how that's all part of the process of uh, moving the mind in the direction of liberation. So, just to conclude with a story then, this is from... uh, Ajahn Brahm. We have any uh, uh, Aussies here? Yeah, all right. He uh, teaches in Australia. So, this is from his book, Who Ordered This Truckload of Dung? And it's called Two Bad Bricks. After we purchased the land for our monastery in 1983, we were broke. We were in debt. There were no buildings on the land, not even a shed. Those first few weeks we slept not on beds, but on old doors we'd bought cheaply from the salvage yard. We raised them on bricks at each corner to lift them off the ground. There were no mattresses, of course. We were forest monks. The abbot had the best door, the flat one. 
My door was ribbed with a sizable hole in the center where the doorknob would have been. I joked that now I wouldn't need to get out of bed to go to the toilet. (laughs) The cold truth was, however, that the wind would come up through that hole. I didn't sleep much those nights. We were poor monks who needed buildings. We couldn't afford to employ a builder. The materials were expensive enough. So I had to learn how to build, how to prepare the foundations, lay concrete and bricks, erect the roof, put in the plumbing, the whole lot. I'd been a theoretical physicist and high school teacher in lay life, not used to working with my hands. After a few years, I became quite skilled at building, even calling my crew the BBC, Buddhist Building Company. But when I started, it was very difficult. It may look easy to lay a brick, a dollop of mortar underneath, a little tap here, a little tap there. But when I began laying bricks, I'd tap up one corner to make it level and another corner would go up. So I'd tap that corner down, then the brick would move out of line. Then I'd nudge it back into line, the first corner would be too high again. Hey, you try it. (laughs) Being a monk, I had patience and as much time as I needed. I made sure every single brick was perfect, no matter how long it took. Eventually, I completed my first brick wall and stood back to admire it. It was only then I noticed, oh no, I'd missed two bricks. All the other bricks were nicely in line, but these two were inclined at an angle. They looked terrible. They spoiled the whole wall. They ruined it. (laughs) By then, the cement mortar was too hard for the bricks to be taking out, so I asked the abbot if I could knock the wall down and start over again, (laughs) or even better, perhaps blow it up. I think he had a little yogi mind at this point. I'd made a mess of it, and I was very embarrassed. The abbot said no, the wall had to stay. When I showed our first visitors around the fledgling monastery, I always tried to avoid taking them past my brick wall. (laughs) I hated anyone seeing it. Then one day, some three or four months after I finished it, I was walking with a visitor, and he saw the wall. That's a nice wall, he casually remarked. Sir, I said in surprise, have you left your glasses in your car? Are you visually impaired? Can't you see those two bad bricks which spoil the whole wall? What he said next changed my whole view of that wall of myself and of many other aspects of life. He said, yeah, I can see those two bad bricks, but I can see the 998 good bricks as well. I was stunned. For the first time in over three months, I could see other bricks in the wall apart from the two mistakes. (laughs) Above, below, to the left and to the right of the bad bricks were good bricks, perfect bricks. Moreover, the perfect bricks were many, many more than the two bad bricks. Before my eyes would focus exclusively on my two mistakes, I was blind to everything else. That was why I couldn't bear looking at the wall or having others see it. That's why I wanted to destroy it. Now that I could see the good bricks, the wall didn't look so bad after all. It was, as the visitor had said, a nice brick wall. It's still there now, 20 years later, but I've forgotten exactly where those bad bricks are. I literally cannot see those mistakes anymore.
In truth, there are many, many more good bricks, perfect bricks, above, below, to the left, and to the right of the faults, but at some time we just can't see them. Instead, every time we look, our eyes focus exclusively on the mistakes. They're all we see, they're all we think are there, and so we want to destroy them. And sometimes, sadly, we do destroy a nice wall. We've all got our two bad bricks, but the perfect bricks in each one of us are much, much more than the mistakes. Once we see this, things aren't so bad. So, you got to notice your uh, good ones. Be a little less fixated on what's unwholesome. Because, you know, really rooting it out, thinking you're going to root it out. Yeah, too much work. Just apply that mindfulness weed killer. So let's uh, sit for a minute and let it all settle. May we proceed in confidence, relying on our good qualities and wholesome states. Knowing the seed of good intention that we've planted will bear fruit. May we practice for the benefit and liberation of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.